Christians sometimes, we need assurance in life. We need stability. Randy Pope, pastor up at Perimeter in Atlanta, says this, that we need purpose in life. There's three things that we need in life, purpose. We need to understand that we have a worthwhile reason for living. He says that we need freedom and not freedom to do what you want, but the freedom to do what is right and good, that we all desire that, that none of us set out in life saying we want to become utter failures. We want the freedom to make the right decisions. And lastly, he says the last drive that we need more than anything is just assurance that, that we all need to understand that in the end it's going to be okay, right? We, we all, we all want to know that no matter how the cards fall out, that in the end it's okay. And if you know anything about our culture and anything about us, we will go to all links as a culture and as a people to find stability and assurance. We look for it in our 401ks and our life insurance policies. We have alarm systems. We have watchdogs, smoke detectors, security details, vaccines, concealed weapons permits. Right? There, there, there's something that threatens our assurance in the world. And there are so many things that we look to to try to find stability, to try to find our footing. And we often take these measures because we live in a world that is anything but stable, right? We, we, we understand and know that. From school shootings to weather catastrophes, flesh-eating bacteria, terrorists flying planes into buildings. And you know what? You don't, it doesn't take you very long. You don't have to live here very long to get a taste of all the instabilities that we have in our world. It's like trying to find your footing in quicksand, isn't it? You know, you're just sort of looking for the bottom. But the truth is, it's this way in every culture. It's been this way in the past, it's this way now in the present, and in the future, it's the same. No matter where you go, whether you're in the United States or Africa or Asia, there's all these instabilities. There's all these things that threaten our assurance. And there's often t t a couple of responses that we have to these threats to our assurance. There's a couple of things that we do. Listen to what Tim Keller says. He says, the human heart is an idle factory that takes good things like a successful career, love, material possession, and even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think that we can gain significance and security and safety and fulfillment in these things, right? So we understand that there's something wrong with our world. We understand that there's something wrong with our lives, and there's not a bottom, and we start looking for things to give us security. And sometimes it's our jobs, and sometimes it's our families, and sometimes it's how many degrees we have, and it's sometimes whether we're a doctor or a lawyer or whatever it might be, we, we're grasping for these things to gain footing in the world. And what Keller is saying is those things are just a facade. They're just a false hope. Or we can, like Helen Keller, listen to what she says. This is her 
This is her thoughts on the idea of assurance in the world. She says, security is mostly a superstition. It doesn't exist in nature, nor do the children of men as a whole ever experience it. That's sad, isn't it? When I, when I think about that, when I think about what she's saying there, she, she doesn't believe that there's ever any security in the world. She has no cure for her anxiety. She has no cure for her instability. What a sad place to be in life. One of the things that you notice, if you read the New Testament very much, especially Matthew and the Beatitudes, that Jesus always sort of, in that chapter, he talks about numerous topics He'll talk about the topic of marriage, or he'll talk about the topic of murder, or he'll talk about the topic of revenge, and he'll, he'll say, you have heard it said about these things. You have heard it said, and then he will come back and say, but this is what I say. And sort of the thing that the Lord wants us to get out of Genesis today, and this topic of assurance, is he wants us to hear what he has to say about our assurance you see, God knows the sickness of our world. He, he knows the frailty of our hearts. He knows that we live in a world of chaos, in a world of sin and brokenness. And if you've ever seen a little child hanging from a limb, maybe he's two or three years old, and they're hanging from a limb, and they know they can't hang on very much longer, that's the way we are. And God wants to come by like a father or a mother and grab us and say, it's okay. There's assurance. There's assurance with me. So as we look at Genesis today, I want you to think about where your assurance lies. I want you to think about where your hope lies, and I want you to understand that we have a God who is extremely generous to bring stability to us. Last week, Ben talked about verse 6 in Genesis, and the, right where our passage takes off in verse 7, Right before that, it says this, And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed that God would send this seed. Abraham believed that God would give him a child. He says he believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then God comes in in verse 7, and this is, he says, I am the Lord. I am the self-existing one. I am the one who is forever stable, Abram. I am the one who is outside the arena of influence. I am the sure rock, Abram. I am the place for you to find comfort for your insecurities. I am the same, Abram, yesterday, today, and forever. I'm not shifting, but I'm solid. And it's like God is telling Abraham, hey, plant yourself in the soil of my character, Abram. Plant your life in the soil, in the nature of who I am. And God wants us as a church to plant ourselves there. God wants us to know that we can have stability in the world, but we can only have stability when we trust in Him. We can only have stability when we plant ourselves in God's character and in His nature. And then verse 8 gets a little tricky because Abraham comes back and he says, but he said, Abram... Abram says this, he says, oh, oh Lord God, how can I know that I shall possess this land? And so if you're just looking at this passage, it's like, well, man, 
Abraham just said he believed God and it was credited to him the righteousness. And now he comes back and he says, Oh Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? It's almost like we're, we're like saying, Come on, man, are you kidding? You were just trusting the Lord and God just made all these promises and he rescued you. And now are you doubting again? Are you wandering and wavering on the promises of God? Are you questioning God's character and ability so quickly after he rescues you? And what I want you to see, if you've ever heard the story in Luke chapter 1, verses 11 through 20, is the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah. And Zechariah was a priest in the temple. And the priest would have rotations that they would go on. And it was, it was his rotation to go into the temple and offer the sacrifices and as he's in the Holy of Holies, an angel appears to him. The angel Gabriel appears to him and says, Zachariah, we're going to give you a son. We're going to, God's going to give you and your wife a son. In that time, it was great disgrace and shame to be without a son. And so the angel told Zechariah that. Now, he's the priest. He's the preacher. If anybody should believe God's promises, right, it's the preacher. And Zacharias doesn't believe. He's like, how, how, how can I know this is going to happen and the angel says, because of your unbelief, you're going to be mute. You're not going to be able to talk when you leave here. And so it leaves you wondering, is this what Abram's doing? Is, is Abram doing what Zechariah did? Is he just doubting God's character and doubting God's promises? And I want you to understand that that's not what's going on here in this passage at all. Abram actually says, O sovereign Lord, Adonai... He's saying, O sovereign king, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe that you're the sovereign king of the universe. I believe that not one sparrow loses its feathers or not one hair falls to the ground without you, God, declaring it. That the sun cannot move one space forward or one space back without your permission, God. I don't believe you have any variation. I don't believe that you have any shadow of turning. But what I think Abram is doing here is he's saying, God, I believe you are who you say you are, but might I press you for more? God, might I press you to make yourself more known to me? God, the promise matters to me. I believe the promise but God, would you make the promise more sure? Will you make the promise more certain? I know you're the sovereign God of the universe. Will you give me more? Will you show me more? It's almost like a dream that's too good to be true. And Abram is saying, I believe, but God, make my faith sure. I'm a fallen God, and I'm prone to unbelief. Will you show me more of who you are so that my belief might be stronger? And we see examples of this in the, in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 18, if you remember the story, God tells Abram that he's going to destroy Sodom, that he's going to destroy the whole city. And it says that Abram understands that God is a righteous God, and he's like, God, surely you're righteous and just. Surely you won't destroy the city if there's 50 good men there. God says, Abram, if there's 50 there, I'll not destroy the city. 
And he comes back to him again. He's like, God, I know that you're righteous and you're just and you're good. If there's 40, if there's 40 there, will you destroy the city? And God said, if there's 40, and he goes on down and on down. And what, what Abram is doing there is he's pressing God for more. He's like, God, I know you, you tell me you're righteous. You tell me you're just. And so I want you to show me that you're righteous. And, and he goes right on down, right on down. And God continues to say, Abram, the, the thing is there is no righteous there. We see it again with Moses in Exodus chapter 33 and Exodus chapter 34. And Moses says, God, show me your glory. Show me more of who you are. I believe you're who you say you are. If we don't go with us and don't send us, but show me more of your glory. God, I want to press you for more. God, tell me your name. And so that's what's happening here in this chapter. Abram is not doubting God he's saying God give me more give me more of who you are I know you are a God of your promises God I know your word is sure I know your character is unwavering I know your substance is a rock but I am frail God I'm a flickering wick and I want to be a torch will you show me more of who you are God, I'm a bruised reed, but I want to be an oak of righteousness. Will you do more, God? Will you do more? God, is this amazing dream, is it really reality? Do you press God for more like that? Do you press God for more on his character? Do you know it's okay to do that? Do you know it's okay to say, God, I believe, but you tell me that you are the sovereign God of the universe. Help me believe more. Show me more of who you are. Show me more of your love. Show me more of your holiness. You see, the way God spells assurance is covenant. That's the way God gives us assurance is covenant. And you see it in the story of Noah. If we were to turn over just a few chapters back, after the flood, Noah comes and he offers a sacrifice to God. And God gives Noah his word and basically says, I'm not going to do this again. The earth will never be destroyed again. There will be seed time and harvest and fall and winter. And then if you keep reading a little further, in Genesis chapter 8, Verses 9 through 11, then God comes back after he gives Noah his word of promise and he comes back and he says, Noah, I'm going to make a covenant with you and your sons. And if you read a little further, it's like, give me more, God. Show me more. And what does God do? He gives Noah a sign, right? The rainbow in the sky. Because God knows that we're weak and we're frail. He knows that when the rains begin to fall again, because many would think, say that this is the first time it had ever rained is the flood. God understood the weakness of who we are, and he knew that when it started to rain again, that the fear and the unassurance would rise, and God doesn't want that for his people. And he says, no, Noah, I've given you my word. Now I'm going to give you a covenant. Now I'm going to give you a sign 
in the heavens. And when you see that, you can know that I will never do this again. Isn't God kind to give us that assurance? We do the same thing, right, when we get married. I tell my wife, I love you. And then we enter into a covenant relationship together. And then I give her a sign of my covenant love. And God wants us to know that we can know that we have a rock-solid assurance in this life. And he does that through the covenant. Because we too have storms in our life, right? And sometimes the rain begins to fall. And we start getting nervous. And God says, listen, I've not only given you my word, but I've given you a covenant and I've given you a sign. Be still and know that I am God. Then in verse 9 through 11, listen what God does. He said to him, Bring me a heifer and three year, that is three years old, and a female goat three years old, and a ram that is three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. Strange language to us. You know the saying, cut a deal with someone, when you cut a deal with someone? It says the truth here, these notes say this, the truth is sealed by ritual covenant action in verse 9 through 11. The slaughter of the division of the animals was part of an ancient rite according to which a sovereign would make a commitment and the ceremony amounts to a legal recognized self-curse that if God ever breaks his promise, that he himself would be sawn in two. Isn't God kind? God knows us, doesn't he? He knows that we waver. He knows that we doubt. He knows that we are all the time in variation, up and down. And he says, I want you to know that you know that the only way this covenant can ever be broken is if I myself am destroyed. If you want to learn more about this, you can read Jeremiah chapter 34. Zedekiah was a king, and they were rebelling against Babylon. And King Zedekiah said that all the slaves in the city all that were Jews could go free because the, the city was being besieged by the Babylonians. So, right, you need all the help that you can get. And they cut a covenant like this where they cut the pieces and they walked between. They said all the slaves that are Jews will be freed. And it said that Zedekiah and the people went back on their promise. And God basically said, I'll destroy you like powder because you have broken your covenant. And so I want you to know that God has made a covenant with his church. That God has made a covenant with his people. It cannot be broken because God himself cannot be broken. In fact, there are some 8th century writings 
an Assyrian text from North Syria that includes the following clause. This head is not the head of a lamb. It is the head of, and it gives the guy's name. It's talking about a covenant. That when God makes a covenant with us, it's to help reassure our hearts in times of uncertainty. But God does more for us. In verses 12 through 16, there's no fine print in God's covenant. There's no hidden clauses. There's always full disclosure, which is another reason that we can gain assurance. You see, verse 13, God told Abram, he said, Look, Abram, the promise is sure and certain. You can rest solid upon my word. But he also said that there would be 400 years of slavery in Egypt before the promise would come. You see, we serve a God who's all about being forthright with his people. God never keeps us in the dark. He's always honest with us. Can you imagine being the generations, 400 generations in slavery and remembering these words? Don't you think that would bring comfort? Hey, listen, it. God told us that we, this would happen. God told us that we'd be in bondage. God is a God of his word, but he also told us he would never leave us nor forsake us. You see that? You see how God tells them they would wander in the desert, right? But that's an assurance, and that should be an assurance for us in our lives that God discloses all things to us. He tells us in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all those who desire to live a godly life Right? We'll be rich and famous in the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, right? No. We'll suffer. We'll suffer that life will be hard. He doesn't promise we won't go through cancer. He doesn't promise that we won't get in a car wreck. He doesn't promise that my child will wake up tomorrow morning. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. Because I've overcome the world. Take heart, Ryan, I raised the dead. Right? So take assurance in the fact that we serve a God who is forthright and honest with us. Even when it's our suffering, right? Even when it's about suffering. Right? Wouldn't it be unkind of me for my kids if I just taught them the easy, just life's going to be easy. Hey, just, it'll all. And then they're diagnosed with a brain tumor, right? Well, Dad, you, you, you. But God's not like that. God is honest with us about life and suffering. He's a God of full disclosure. But he's also a God who raises the dead. It's one of the ways you know the scriptures are so true. Man would never make something like that up, right? I was reading something the other day. We, we, I think we made 500 treaties, 500 treaties with the American Indians. You know how many we broke? 500. Psalms tells us, I think it's Psalms 116, that all mankind are liars. God knows that we need that security. 
He knows that we need that assurance, and he gives it to us through a covenant. I'm going to read Hebrews 10, 19 again. We read it earlier, but I just want you to hear the language that God gives us. Listen to all the passages, all the, all the times that it talks about assurance or certainty. Therefore, brothers, since we have a confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that opened us, opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another towards love and good deeds, and let us not forsake the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another in all the more as we see that day approaching. God wants us to be certain, church. He wants us to be certain in times of prosperity. He wants us to be certain in times of suffering. He wants us to be certain. One of the things that we see in this passage is that God is a condescending God. That God knows the brokenness of our world. He knows the brokenness of my own heart. And he condescends to us with a promise. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. But God knows that that's not enough for us because we're fallen, right? And so he comes and he gives us a covenant. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. But God knows that that's not enough, right? So he gives us the sign of the covenant. He gives us a table. He gives us circumcision. He gives us baptism. And yet God knows that's not going to be enough for us, doesn't he? So then, in John 1, 14, the word becomes flesh, right? You see God continuing to condescend and condescend and condescend. But yet he goes further than that. And it says in Isaiah 53, 5, that he was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquity. You see, God has always upheld his part of the covenant. And God has always said, if I break my part, of, if the covenant's ever broken, that I'll be torn in two. But God has done more than that because he wants us to be sure. We've broken the covenant and he was cut in two on our behalf. You see the gospel? You see how deep the gospel is? God never broke his side of the covenant. We did. And we break it over and over and over again. And God knew when Adam sinned in the garden that we would break it over and over again. He knew when he brought the Ten Commandments to Moses that we'd break it over and over. And his plan the whole time was to condescend and be sawn in two so that we could be his. Do we know God like that? Do you know a God that you can press for more and say, God, you tell me that you don't want me to struggle with fear. 
And that you're the God who takes away fear. So God, take away my fear. You see, all God's people need to know God so that we can press him for more. You know, the church, we ought to be a people of full disclosure. There ought not to be any hidden secrets here or there. We ought to just be open for all to see. You know, one of the main things that we should learn from this whole passage is to do unto others as God has done unto us, right? I want you to think about that when people sin against you. When people sin against me, I want to think about, okay, not come in right, well, well I, I did what I was supposed to, you didn't, that's not what God did. God says, I'm going to keep my side of the covenant, and by the way, I'm going to die because you didn't keep your side. What if we approach sin in one another's lives like that? Reconciliation. Man, it'd be a wonderful community, wouldn't it? Finally, as we close, God desires us to fight for holiness, fight for purity. But when we break the covenant, look to the cross and worship God for his faithfulness. You know, that's what God wants us to do. Fight for holiness. Be who God has called us to be. Be holy for I am holy. But you know what? You're going to break the covenant as soon as you get up out of your chairs almost. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> I won't even hardly get home before I'll break the covenant. But you know what? I can look to the cross, and I can worship God for his faithfulness. Man, God's a good God, isn't he? Isn't he good? He's good. Let's pray.